Let's remain standing and let's take our Bibles out and let's turn them, if you have not already, to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, and we will be reading this morning verses 21 through 32. That will also be the text that we'll be considering today. Follow along as I read. Mark 15, beginning in verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And when they crucified, with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Let's pray. Lord, the import of these words um, escape us. We cannot understand uh, exactly all that was going on in this and in the, the following passage, Father. We, we know that it is our salvation that we are reading of here, uh, that it is your eternal counsel that we are reading of here. We pray, Lord, that as we consider these words, that, that your Spirit would work in us to, uh, to work in us more than words, Lord, but understanding and humility and worship as we consider these things that were done for our good. I pray, Lord, that you would bless me as I speak. Father, may, may you speak through me, and may it be to the benefit of your people, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We come this morning, beloved, to one of two central events in God's plan of redemption. Let's begin with, with just a moment to consider that and get that squared away in our minds and get our minds uh, sort of grounded on that, that this is God's plan, that God has a plan. The hope for mankind did not end with the fall in the Garden of Eden. In fact, as as we know about it, as we see it broad in time and space, it actually began there. 
because it was there that God put out the good news that one day there would come one, a member of the race of man, a seed of the woman, as the text says, who would reverse the curse that Adam's sin had just at that time recently brought on the human race. And from there we can trace, in fact we should trace through the Bible how God has moved throughout history to bring that good news about. Calling a man named Abram, later Abraham, himself the seed of that first woman, to, to bring that about, uh, giving to Abraham the, the covenant promise, and through him, through his seed now, promising that one would come who would be a blessing to all the nations because God would do it. And then through Abraham's son and through his son after that, that promise was carried on, given to us in the scriptures, explained to us, shown in detail how that, that moved along. God then called a people, a nation, to be his people and gave to them the worship not to mention the presence of Almighty God, eventually giving to them a king, a king of his own choosing, who would be and was great among his people, and who would, we learn as we read the scriptures, who would himself be the forebearer of that promised seed of the woman that we read about in Genesis 3. That one who would rescue his people from their sin and from the consequences of that sin. And the prophets, from Moses and David to Isaiah and Jeremiah, Daniel, Hosea, all of the rest, finally Malachi, they all spoke from God, they all spoke of God. God coming to rescue his people, to rescue his fallen people from their fallenness, from the curse that we are under. Through a servant that he would appoint, that he would anoint, and that he would send. A man, but not merely a man, but God himself would come. And in the fullness of time, the Bible says, God sent his son into the world, born of a virgin, born to save his people from their sins. The good news. And it is that one, the son of man, the son of God, the seed of the woman, the prophet like Moses, the son of David, destined to rule over God's people forever, the servant of God who would be God himself, who was also known as a suffering servant because the Bible says that he would suffer many things at the hands of his people. He would even be betrayed and arrested and condemned and ultimately be killed and die on a cross and on that cross bear the sins of his people. And his death, which we begin to look at this morning in these verses, is one of those two central events of human history, of redemptive history, more importantly. The other is his being raised from the dead, which, of course, we will look at in due course. 
But this morning, we begin to look at the death of Christ as Mark records it. Now, I mentioned, again, just here by way of reminder, you know this, but let's be reminded of it, that the four gospel writers each contribute different details to the overall picture and the gospels um, and the picture that the gospels give us of the death of Christ. We saw that with his arrest and with the trials before both the religious and the civil authorities, how each one gave these uh, different uh, aspects of that, and it all comes together to give us a picture of that uh, event. And we see the same thing here in the crucifixion. Mark, as you may have noticed as we read this, and we might expect this by now, is the briefest of the records. And Mark's focus in these things uh, regarding these things, while certainly being cognizant of the importance of the redemptive death of Christ and, and that being central, of course, Mark seems to focus more on what is being done to Christ and who was doing it. In fact, we'll see next time that there is only one of the famous seven words from the cross of Jesus. Mark only records one of those. That's how brief he is in his treatment of this. Uh, we'll see that it's the most important one, but there's just one. And in line with the focus of Mark here, uh, we're going to look this morning at six witnesses to this horrific drama that played out in the crucifixion of Jesus. We'll look first. We'll start with Simon. Simon. If you look at your text there, look at your Bibles, you'll see that Mark concluded his description of the trials of Jesus along with his, his suffering, physical torment at the hands of his captors, first of the Jews, then, then the Roman soldiers, with the statement that he gives in verse 20 of chapter 15. He says, And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And we pick up then with verse 21 with these words. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. That was a common practice. And by the way, the Romans by this time had made crucifixion a, a horribly common practice. Uh, they did not invent crucifixion, probably the Assyrians did, uh, but the Romans, if we can say this, perfected it. They perfected it. They raised its effectiveness as both a torturous death and a very effective deterrent to rebellion. They perfected all of that to a very high level. And it was common practice uh, surrounding the crucifixion of an individual. By the way, I mentioned, I think, last week that crucifixion was so horrible that Romans would not crucify Roman citizens. It was, um, it was kept for the very worst of society, for, for foreigners, uh, for Christians, and as we see, for Christ. And it was a common practice that the condemned prisoner would himself be forced to carry his cross, or at least the, the cross member a portion of it, out to the site of cru the crucifixion. And it's no different, we see here, 
with Jesus. But we see that Jesus in this required help. And if we think about it for half a moment, we can see how that could be. Remember, first of all, that Jesus was fully man with all of the weaknesses. He was not superhuman in his human nature. He was human-human in his human nature. Remember what has already happened to Jesus before, in the hours before this, just the hours before this. Actually, just the last very few hours before this. He had had no sleep the night before. Remember, he had left the, the, the Last Supper, gone across, gone up uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane, prayed, um, prayed three times, tried to get the disciples to pray. They slept. He didn't sleep. Then he was arrested. Then he was dragged up to the, the high priest's home, Annas's, and then Caiaphas's, and then to Pilate, and then to Herod, and then back to Pilate. No sleep for him during that whole time. And we might also add the not inconsequential fact that of the, the emotional stress in that, as we've mentioned before, that Jesus knew everything that was going to happen to him in these ensuing hours. So no sleep, that stress, um, the obvious rough handling by the guards in his arrest, uh, those appearances dragged from here to there. Again, Annas, Caiaphas, Pilate, Herod, Pilate again. And then the guards. Um, he had been beaten, mocked and beaten by the soldiers of the high priest. He was beaten again by the soldiers in Herod's uh, palace. After being returned to Pilate, he had undergone a Roman scourging. We talked a bit about the horrors of that last week. And remember, as I'd mentioned last week, that many prisoners died simply as a result of that scourging. So intense, so violent, and so terrible as that was. But then Jesus was abused and beaten and bloodied further by the guards before they led him out to be crucified. As a result, Jesus was not able physically to make it very far carrying his cross. And so the Roman soldiers we see here grabbed this man off the street, identified for us as Simon of Cyrene, and compelled him to carry Jesus' cross. And the Roman soldiers had that authority. They could grab someone off the street. They could compel them to, to carry this man's cross. They could compel them to do all sorts of things. They had that authority. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about if someone makes you go a mile with them to go to the, the background there is that Roman soldiers would often grab someone off the street and say, carry my, my gear, and they'd have to carry it for a certain uh, length. So here they grab this man, Simon of Cyrene. It's interesting that if it wasn't for this, we would have had no idea of this man, but now he's sort of ingrained in our memory by the fact that by God's providence, he happened to be at that place at that time. So this man, Simon, a Jew from Cyrene, it's in North Africa where there was a large Jewish uh, group living. 
He's either coming into town for the first time for the day or for the day coming back into town, but he is compelled, ordered, forced, whatever word you want to use, to carry Jesus' cross the relatively short distance from, from Pilate's uh, palace, from the governor's mansion, if you will, to the place of crucifixion. By the way, notice there in, in verse 21 that Simon's referred to as the father of Alexander and Rufus. It must be that Peter's original audience in Rome, remember his book was written to the Christians in Rome, um, that they apparently knew of these men, apparently of Simon. Uh, Paul, in his letter to the Roman church, sends greetings to Rufus and his mother, by the way. Uh, apparently, through this situation, uh, this man and his family had become followers of Christ, part of the Roman church to whom uh, Paul would would send greetings. So that is the first witness, is this man uh, who's on the scene and then off of the scene pretty quickly, Simon, uh, who carried his cross. The next witness to the crucifixion that Mark tells us about are the soldiers. The soldiers. As we've been going through this, we have encountered Jewish soldiers. We've encountered Roman soldiers. The Jewish soldiers were the uh, temple police who came, were part of the crowd that came to uh, arrest Jesus. But uh, after that, the Roman soldiers, they're the ones that are are now sort of uh, taking over. We're talking about the Roman soldiers here now. Uh, Remember, capital punishment and the the things surrounding that, um, especially crucifixion, were under Rome's jurisdiction. They were the only ones who could do that. The Jews could not uh, do that. And the Roman soldiers then are in charge of this, and they're seen really throughout this passage. They are the ones who compelled Simon to carry Jesus' cross. They then, verse 22 says, that they brought him, that is, brought Jesus, to the place called Golgotha, which means a place of a, the place of a skull. Golgotha is uh, it's an Aramaic word. Aramaic is very similar, very, very similar to, to Hebrew. Uh, the word actually just means skull. It's a bit of an um, explanation to say that it means the place of a skull. So we have Golgotha. Um, by the way, the Latin word for that is Calvaria, where we get the word Calvary from. Why it's called the place of the skull, we don't know. Uh, maybe it resembled a skull. There are some places, uh, some uh, Bible dictionaries that will show you a picture of, of a rock that sort of looks like a skull and say that's probably it. Uh, maybe, we don't know for sure, maybe a skull was found there one time. Any number of reasons why it might have been called that, we're not really told. It doesn't really matter. The name really doesn't matter too much at all, though it adds of course, to the the horrible mental image of the place and what took place there. This place of the skull was outside of the walls of the city, which is important as we look back through Old Testament history and the idea of certain things being done, certain people being placed outside of the camp. The unclean went were, were, were forced to go outside of the camp and to live there banished there, another shade of what's going on here as Christ uh, himself 
uh, is becoming for us an unclean thing before the Father in the sight of God as he bears on himself the sins of us who are unclean things, whose righteousness is like filthy rags before the pure, holy eyes of God. God treated his son as a horrid, unclean, vile thing in order that he might see you as clean. Then we get this interesting little statement in verse 23 there that they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, it's interesting, first of all, because of the word they, a little bit of, of exegesis here, is, is what does the, the, who does the they refer to? Um, the most natural thing would be the soldiers who had just brought him out uh, to the, the place of the skull there in order to be crucified, but we don't know. The wine mixed with myrrh that's mentioned there um, was likely either wine or vinegar with myrrh or a similar component added to it that gave it a narcotic effect. And it had that sort of effect on the drinker. And if that's the case, it is very unlikely that that would have come from the Roman soldiers. Because uh, Roman soldiers were not about expressions of mercy especially to those who were being crucified. Another possibility that scholars have, have seen is that this, was, this, this wine mixed with myrrh was offered sort of in general by a group of Jewish women there in Jerusalem. Um, they were known to do that in, in uh, one of the Targum. It speaks about that that they would offer drugged wine to those who were being crucified, sort of on the basis of Proverbs 31.6 that says, give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. They would do this as an act of mercy to those who were going to be crucified. So that's a possibility as well. Again, we don't know regardless, and amazingly, the point is that Jesus, having been offered it, refused it would not take it. And the most likely reason uh, is that Jesus, as Jesus had determined to fully drink the cup of wrath given to him by the Father, he is likewise determined to face it clearly, with a clear head and a clear mind, to face it fully. So he refuses this uh, narcotic to help kill the pain. Next we see the soldiers... Well, we see them attend to their task. And in another example of understatement and brevity in Mark here in verse 24, he says, and they crucified him. Is there a period there? No. But that's the end of the statement. Wow, Mark. The central event, one of two central events in, in the history of the world, and Mark gives it, Three words it's in the original. Well, we can't give, be too hard on Mark because if we look at the other gospel writers, they don't do any more, really. Matthew almost skirts it completely, the, the act itself. He just says, and when they had crucified him, and goes on to tell the next aspect of it. Luke and John just say, and there they crucified him. 
No great detail, no detail of crucifixion. And, and Mark here, likewise, no description, no mention of it. It is, it's the writers, future writers of, of other books. It's the artists. It's the television and movie producers who like to go into great detail about the horrors of crucifixion. Um, okay, it's also the pastors who very often will paint the most uh, gruesome pictures of the crucifixion. And make no mistake, crucifixion was a horrible, horrible means of death, an unimaginable thing to experience, designed to be that way. But we, beloved, as Christians, we need to always remember we'll see it more next week, that the ultimate suffering which Jesus experienced was not the physical, as, as terrible as that was, but that wasn't the ultimate suffering. It was the spiritual suffering. It was the suffering that we cannot see and that cannot be put on canvas or on a TV screen or on a movie screen. And perhaps it's part of the decree of God that his son should die in this manner so that we might see faintly reflected in the external suffering something of what Jesus suffered in the secret unseen places of his soul as he bore our sin before holy God, as he experienced hell on the cross. We'll talk more about that next week as well. And we see here to add insult to, well, I don't know if they could add anything more to the injury, but to add insult to it, to the physical suffering of Christ. Another aspect of the indignity of, of this is that we read in verse 24 that they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Uh, by reminding ourselves that if they are dividing his garments up amongst themselves, guess where they are not? They are not on Christ. We talked about that last week. Crucifixion, those, the, the subjects of crucifixion were crucified naked in order to add shame to their suffering. And so the soldiers, with Jesus' clothes, gamble for them. Well, cast lots for them. Gambling implies putting money in to be able to do it. We're just told that they cast lots for them. Casting lots, flipping coins, you know, drawing straws, throwing dice, whatever. A random act to see who would get the clothes of Jesus. Especially, John tells us, Jesus' tunic, which was a, a longer garment that they would wear next to their skin. Jesus' tunic was of a single piece. It, it was not, uh, there's no seam in it, so they decided not to tear that up, but to uh, gamble for that or to, to cast lots for that. And that, in and of itself, as so many other things in Jesus' death, fulfills prophecy. We read Psalm 22 this morning. It says, I'll read a couple of verses here, for, God, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. 
I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Here they fulfill that. The soldiers. There's one final act of at least one of the Roman soldiers that stands out for mention here this morning for its importance. And to to see that, we have to sort of sneak down into the next passage. Look down at verse uh, 39. I mean, in the presence of all the, the Jewish people, it is one of the Roman soldiers, one of the very soldiers who have crucified Jesus, who having seen all of the things that we're looking at today and we'll look at next week, verse 39 says that, When he saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. God working, God sending the news of Christ to the Gentiles right there at the cross. That one of the Roman soldiers, at least this one, is forced to admit who it was that they had just hung on a cross and killed. The next of the witnesses is the sign. The sign. After giving us one of his characteristic uh, time references there in verse 25, he says it was the third hour when they crucified him. That's nine in the morning as we would, would count time when they crucified him. Then verse 26 says, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Now, it was also typical for a sign with the, the capital charge uh, that was the reason that they were being crucified to be often worn around the neck of a prisoner as they carried their cross to the place of execution. Uh, perhaps that was done as well, but we're told for sure by all four gospel writers that a sign was made, and this sign was affixed to the cross on which Jesus was crucified. And there are each of the four gives slight variations of the, of the wording, none contradictory, just different aspects of it. Uh, but all mention the crucial charge that Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews, and that is mockingly put on this sign. And that was the charge for which he was crucified. Because to the Romans, that was a charge of high treason, a crime of high treason, to claim against the Rome and emperor who was to them the king of Israel, the king of the Jews, as well as the king of all of the rest of the empire, to say, for Jesus to say that he is the king of the Jews uh, was a treasonous thing. John tells us that it is Pilate himself who specified the wording on this sign and that he refused to change it. Remember, the Jews or the high priests insisted that he change it to uh, he claimed to be, or he said he was, the king of the Jews. That this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate famously said, what I have written, I have written. And he wouldn't change it. And while we don't know what was on Pilate's mind well, when he did that, beloved, it is another example for us of God using all of these horrible things, all of the details of this, to proclaim the truth about Jesus. The full inscription as we look at the four Gospels was this. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And again, obviously a mocking not only of Jesus, 
but of the Jews by the Romans. Here is your king on the cross. But we rejoice, don't we, to know that it's true, that Jesus is the king, and not just of a physical Jewish nation, but that Jesus is the king of all of those who belong to him through faith, Jew and Gentile. He is the king whom God has established, who now sits at the right hand of the Father. He is the king. And this, and we get this from John as well, this inscription, we're told, was written in three languages on this sign. It was written in Aramaic. That's the language of the Jews, especially there in Palestine. Again, very similar to Hebrew. So it's written in Aramaic. It's written in Latin, which was the official language of the Roman Empire. And it's written in Greek, the common language of commerce and culture of the day. You get it? The proclamation of just who this was on the cross is proclaimed in every language of everyone who would be coming by. All who saw him would see that and would be able to read, this is the king. And today, we, the church, proclaim this same truth of this crucified king throughout the world in every language. And that's the commission of the church. But of course, we have something today that they didn't. We have the proof the resurrection. So the fourth group then, we'll call them the scoundrels. The amazing prophecy of Isaiah 53, you know it, we read it very often, we read it very often when we do communion. Isaiah 53, written 700 years before these events that we're considering today, uh, in language and specificity that seems more like an eyewitness account of the passion of Christ than a prophecy written 700 years before. It says in verse 12 that he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And we see that here in verse 27. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. We see this fulfilled uh, again, as the perfect, sinless Son of God who lived among and ate with and fellowship with sinners and touched the, the unclean, touched the lepers, that he was, in the end, numbered with them, with the transgressors. Another, another visible element of the invisible reality that's going on in these events, that Jesus on the cross was identifying with sinners, even taking their place before the righteous judge of the universe. Now we know from the other accounts that though both of the two thieves crucified with him began by reviling Jesus, Mark tells us uh, that those who were crucified uh, with him also reviled him. That's down at the very end of our passage in verse 32. Tradition's even given us their names, these two. Do you know them? I had to look them up. I didn't know, I didn't know what their names was. Were Dismas and Gestus were their names, according to tradition. But we know that one of them, Dismas, 
uh, even in the midst of crucifixion, expressed faith in Christ and was told by Jesus in wonderful words, today you will be with me in paradise. The Puritans used to talk about dying well. Well, beloved, that is dying well. Dying with that statement ringing in your ears of the grace of God. A couple more, quickly. Fifth is the spectators. Crucifixion was a very common, a very public uh, execution. Again, intentionally so. Every aspect was designed not only, as I said, about a, as a means of punishment, but as a deterrent to others. I would imagine quite an effective deterrent to others. And for this reason, it was likely that the place of execution was in a very public place, near a road where people would see it. And that makes sense because we are told that those who passed by, in verse 29, derided him. Passers-by, traveling into the city, out of the city, all came, all saw that sign written in those three languages. But instead of bowing, instead of worshiping, Mark says that they derided him. An interesting word. The word that's translated derided here is the Greek word blasphemeo, which you can hear. We get the word blaspheme from. So Jesus was charged by the Jews originally with blaspheming, but here it is they, the Jews um, and the, the Romans, everyone who passed by who's blaspheming in their mocking of Christ. And they wagged their heads, the text says, a sign of shame and derision. Mark says that they, they mocked him. Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Show us a sign. They're still looking for some display of power. Prove who you are. And in this, another fulfillment of prophecy, this time also from Psalm 22. That's why we read it this morning. Verses 6 and 7 said, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And so the spectators also mocked our Lord that day. And finally, Mark brings back into the story the ones who, at least humanly speaking, were behind all of this. We'll call them the Sanhedrin. We know it's the Sanhedrin because we have them described again, mentioning two of those three constituent parts of the Sanhedrin. In verse 31, the chief priests and the scribes. And they join with these words. They join in echoing the, the mocking shouts of the crowd it says, so also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see him and believe. Great mocking because they have seemingly won the day. They have succeeded in seeing this man who they so despised, who they so envied, we learned last week, seeing this man put to death, this man who loved people, who healed the sick, who even raised the dead, who preached the word of God, he is now giving his life up. And the Jewish leaders are glad of it. 
but they are not yet emptied of their hate, and so even now they mock Jesus and challenge Jesus. Notice that the Sanhedrin and the spectators sort of join in together. They share in their challenge and their conclusion about this. The spectators say, save yourself. The Sanhedrin say, say, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Beloved, this shows how blind and how deaf they were. They do not understand that Jesus' purpose, that Jesus' intent was not to save himself, but by offering himself up to them, by undergoing all of this, by specifically not coming down from the cross, not saving himself, that he would save a multitude of others, that he would save you and me. He came, paraphrase and switch around a little bit, another statement of Jesus, he came not to be saved, but to save by giving his life as a ransom for many. He cannot save himself, they said. Oh, no. He most certainly could have saved himself, but we notice that if he had saved himself, he could not have saved us. So much has been endured by our Lord to this point. But, beloved, he has much, much more yet to endure before he can dismiss his spirit and breathe his last. The worst and the best is yet to come. And we'll look at that next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for what he came to do. We thank you that he came to this world, that he took on our nature in order that we might be saved. We thank you that he has endured these things we've looked at today and more for us, that we might be made right with you. Lord, we love you. We love your son. We pray that you would help us to worship and serve him as we ought. And we ask this all in his name. Amen.